Isaiah chapter 56, as we continue through this last 10 chapter section of Isaiah, we're looking, beginning with verse 9 and reading through chapter 57 and verse 13. The question that Isaiah has been addressing is, can be put this way, how can a holy and faithful God make peace? with his sworn enemies in a world at war with him? How can a holy and faithful God establish in his world that is at war with him his peace, what the Bible calls shalom? In order to get at that question, first we have to establish who his sworn enemies are which is not as easy to establish as you might imagine, which is why the first 40 chapters of Isaiah's, ministry, of Isaiah's book tries to establish the point that at the heart of the world's enmity is the world's steadfast rebellion. Not least the steadfast rebellion against his rule among his people. Having established that, though, in the first 39 chapters, we may find ourselves trembling and wondering if we are so steadfastly rebellious and faithless, then what hope is there to which Isaiah chapter 40 opens as a response? Comfort, comfort, my people, tell Jerusalem that her war is ended. And so begins the last half of Isaiah in which he establishes the fact that God himself will do for us what he requires of us. That's what the last section of Isaiah is about. The establishment of God's peace by God's justice, in God's world, among God's people. We considered that at the very end, as we started this this fall, the glory of God's just love by which he makes his enemies, his beloved children, in a stunning and entirely unexpected turn of events. And then we backed up and we started with Isaiah chapter 56 as we, as we began to work through the process of how it is that God works towards that climactic and glorious end. And we discovered that at the center of God's plan to establish his peace by the glory of his just love is the creation of a worldwide Sabbath-keeping people. And lest you missed the point yesterday, that's, I mean last week, that's us. And so we pick up the theme with Isaiah chapter 56, beginning with verse 9. All you beasts of the field, come to devour all you beasts in the forest. His watchmen are blind. They are all without knowledge. They are all silent dogs. They cannot bark, dreaming, lying down, loving to slumber. 
The dogs have a mighty appetite. They never have enough. But they are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way, each to his own gain, one and all. Come, they say, let me get wine. Let us fill ourselves with strong drink. And tomorrow will be like this day, great beyond measure. The righteous man perishes and no one lays it to heart. Devout men are taken away while no one understands. For the righteous man is taken away from calamity. He enters into peace. They rest in their beds who walk in their uprightness. But you, draw near, sons of sorceress, sons of the sorceress, offspring of the adulterer and the loose woman. Whom are you mocking? Against whom do you open wide your mouth and stick out your tongue? Are you not children of transgression, the offspring of deceit? You who burn with lust among the oaks under every green tree, who slaughter your children in the valleys under the clefts of the rocks? Among the smooth stones of the valley is your portion. They, they are your lot. To them you have poured out a drink offering. You have brought a grain offering. Shall I relent for these things? On a high and lofty mountain you have set your bed. And there you went up to offer sacrifice. Behind the door and the doorpost you have set up your memorial. For deserting me you have uncovered your bed. You have gone up to it. You have made it wide. And you have made a covenant for yourself with them. You have loved their bed. You have looked on nakedness. You journeyed to the king with oil and multiplied your perfumes. You sent your envoys far off and sent down even to Sheol. You were wearied with the length of your way. But you did not say it is hopeless. Rather, you found new life for your strength. And so you were not faint. Whom did you dread and fear so that you lied and did not remember me and did not lay it to heart? Have I not held my peace even for a long time and you do not fear me? I will declare your righteousness and your deeds, but they will not profit you. When you cry out, Let your collection of idols deliver you. The wind will carry them all off. A breath will take them away. But he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the faithful and loving and just God to us, his people made alive from among the dead. Let us pray that by his spirit he would grant us eyes to see and ears to hear as he speaks to us. So, Father, we do come to this your word and this your hour that you have set aside for us, those who bear the name of your son, Jesus Christ, to gather in your presence to hear you speak. We gather as those who have been saturated in a world at war with you throughout this week. We have been bombarded with messages from television and radio and from friends and neighbors. And so, Father, we are distracted with worry and fear and anxiety, and we're tired. So now, by your Spirit, be pleased to descend upon this place, to descend upon us as your people, 
and once again cry out, Peace be still, that we may behold the glory of your Son in our midst, and so find rest and rejoicing. For we pray it as your children in Jesus. Amen. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher in Ecclesiastes. It's a well-known expression even in the world at large, because, partly because it gives expression to how we so frequently feel. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity and exhausting and never-ending pursuit of the wind in life under the sun. And boy, don't we get it. I served as clerk of Presbytery, and if anybody knows anything about Presbyterianism, you know that serving as clerk of Presbytery is like shepherding butterflies. It can't be done. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. There are days when we think we could have actually written those lines. We put away the last pieces of laundry just as the family gets home and we think, oh, I've accomplished something great. And we say, welcome home. And they say, thanks, mom. Thanks, dad. And we turn around and the basket is overflowing. Or rather, the basket is empty but the piles of laundry have piled around it because they played basketball and they're not a good team. We think, is it already time for dinner? We just had lunch. Mako is not here today, and so I can actually say, you know, hanging out with her family on vacation is exhausting because we're no longer, no sooner finished with breakfast and we start talking about where we're going to have lunch. No sooner finished with lunch and where we're going to have dinner and the snacks in between, which is, of course, why my kids love to vacation with their grandparents. We finally click and send, we click send or submit that last report when someone calls with another stack to be done. Never mind the circumstances that remain stubbornly and maddeningly beyond our reach and beyond our control. Stuff that we see unfolding in Washington. What in the world? Or in our cities, or even in our schools, even in our classrooms. The exhaustion and the anxiety we feel in our daily lives, of course, is compounded by the anxiety and the fear of unexpected news. Unexpected changes in our life and circumstances. Unexpected events in our congregations. Unexpected tragedies in our families. Storms in our neighborhood. And sometimes it gets to be so much that we wonder if maybe even God has taken vacation. Or perhaps has he even been there at all, ever. Or, more frighteningly, we suspect that he is there. 
he's just not willing or able anymore to keep his end of the bargain. And so we scramble, don't we, for alternatives uh, to shore up that which is faltering and failing. We think, I've been doing everything I should be doing. Why, God, aren't you keeping up your end of the deal? I can't run farther. I can't run faster. It's all enough to make us want to run for the hills and sit under a nice green shade tree to escape it all, to cry out as that old commercial taught us that a handful of you might remember, most of you will not. Calgon, take me away! But while these things may relieve the anxiety and the fears, while they may relieve the exhaustion for a time, the fact is that it is all there when we get back, waiting for us. And sometimes the stacks have grown higher. It's not unlike what Israel was facing as Isaiah ministered. They're in the waning days of the uh, kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom of Samaria has already been carried away. And Judah now is remaining, but it's on its last legs, maybe not even on its last legs. Assyria is rising in the east, but is coming down hard and heavy, fast and furious from the north. The economy is faltering Enemies are rising up around Jerusalem. Some enemies are rising up around Jerusalem to sort of create a defense barrier for with one another against Assyria. But it looks hopeless, even so. After all, the military of Judah and its surrounding and the surrounding nations is showing signs of being stretched too thin, trying to do too much with too few resources. And even if they had it, they're not quite up to the challenges anyway. Which is all so mind-bending and confusing for the people of the promise. Because you remember the promise. The promise so many years ago to Abraham that I will make for you a great name. I will make for you a great nation. And the promise as it got echoed through the years that it will be an everlasting kingdom and nation that I give to you. Oh boy, it looked like it was going to be fulfilled in the days of David. Actually, there was peace on every side. And then Solomon, the economy boomed and the territory expanded. The promise, it seems, was being fulfilled. But now... What happened? Samaria is gone. And we're about to die. What about all those promised blessings of a great name and a legacy that will last forever and ever and ever? I thought we were going to be that shining city on a hill. Now it all seems so vain. It seems to have evaporated 
like little more than a morning mist. It seems so futile now to have pursued the ways of God. Look at us. And the problem here is that Israel was suffering from a fundamental misunderstanding of their circumstances and who they were in it. Israel was missing something. Israel was missing what we often miss. That at the root of our anxieties, at the root of our fears, at the root of our exhaustion, hear me, in the midst of unexpected and difficult and often quite painful circumstance, at the root of our anxieties and fears and exhaustion in the midst of that, is a fundamental misunderstanding of our circumstances, of our condition in those circumstances, and our consequent foolish and harmful responses to those circumstances. But you see, the promised blessing of peace for which we hunger and thirst and ache in the midst of unexpected and difficult circumstances comes by understanding. The peace of God comes by understanding. By rightly understanding our circumstances and our condition in them, John Calvin said, a true wisdom consists in two things, knowledge of God and knowledge of self. And the order matters. This is the true wisdom and the true understanding that brings peace. By knowing God, we know ourselves and we know our circumstances. Our passage opens up. In verse 9, with the Lord through Isaiah calling out to the beasts of the field, to the beasts of the forest, to come and feast. Come and feast upon my people in Jerusalem. Come, O nations, and feast. You see, Isaiah has actually said earlier in his ministry that, I, that Cyrus, uh, that, excuse me, that, um, that Cyrus, yes, was the, was the appointed one, the anointed one, his servant, who would accomplish his task. Assyria, you see, was coming hard and fast upon Jerusalem by the Lord's appointment. And invitation. Come, beasts of the field, come, beasts of the forest, and devour. For Jerusalem stands vulnerable. Why? Well, verse 10 of chapter 56 because his watchmen are blind. They stand watch, but they see nothing. They don't understand what it is that they are seeing. 
Everything's fine, they say, we learn from Jeremiah's prophecy. They're without knowledge. They see all these events unfolding, but they don't have any understanding of their meaning of them. The righteous man perishes, verse, chapter 57, verse 1, and no one lays it to heart. No one, no one thinks to themselves, what in the world is going on here? No one has the ability to comprehend the possibility that devout men are being taken away, that the righteous man is being taken away out of calamity. It seems a little bit strange until we remember the whole episode of Sodom and Gomorrah. Do you remember in that episode, the Lord, because of his mercy and his faithfulness to his promise to Abraham, rescued Lot, removed Lot from the city of Sodom because he was about to destroy it according to his justice and his love. And so we find a hint of the same sort of thing happening here. The righteous man perishes, devout men are taken away, and no one takes it to heart. The watchmen don't realize that the Lord is preparing for calamity. These are dogs with a mighty appetite. They gobble, 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 and they never have enough. They are worthless watchdogs. They are watchdogs who don't bark, who can't bark. Some of you all have dogs that are big and scary looking. And they come bounding up to you when you open the door because they want to lick your face and get a belly rub. That's what's going on here. They're not watchdogs. They have a mighty appetite. They are shepherds without understanding. They recognize, they use their positions for their own gain. They extend an invitation that reveals they have no understanding of the invitation that God himself has extended. Come, they say. Tomorrow's going to be great. Let's have wine and beer. Let's celebrate. It couldn't be better with no understanding of who their God is and who they are, and therefore no understanding of their circumstances. But things begin to topple, and they begin to wonder. And so what do these shepherds do? And what do the people of Israel do in faithful following of their shepherds? Verse 3. The shepherds look to the nations and they adopt and adapt the wisdom of the world as reflected in the religious worldview and practices of the surrounding nations. They draw, he says, the Lord through Isaiah says, draw near sons of the sorceress, offspring of the adulterer and loose woman. Who are you mocking? Against whom do you open wide your mouth and stick out your tongue. You are children of transgression because you have pursued the wisdom of the world as reflected in the religious practices of the surrounding nations. 
Verse 5. You burn with lust among the oaks under every green tree that was established upon every hill. You see, the surrounding nations in their fertility cults, they would establish these places of worship on top of hills under these massive green trees, and that's where they would go to worship. Everyone was doing it. It seemed to make sense. Perhaps these nations who appear to be so much stronger and so much more vibrant than we are, perhaps they're on to something. Perhaps we should adapt and adopt some of their wisdom. After all, right? All truth is God's truth. Perhaps the Canaanites know something that we don't. Let's add the practices of the Canaanites to our practices of Yahwehism. They slaughter their children in the valleys under the clefts of the rocks because the surrounding nations thought that the way to keep the gods appeased and off their backs was to sacrifice their children. Which, of course, we are sadly all too familiar with, right? If we sacrifice our children, then maybe we'll have the life that we've dreamed of. After all, my life is my choice, right? Among the smooth stones of the valley is your portion because there's a reference there to, again, the practices of surrounding nations to create these altars of worship in every valley. They had their bases covered. All contingencies, the hills, the clefts, the valleys. Man, there's rich wisdom to be had among the nations. So much more up to date than anything we've been taught. On behind every door, in, the, in our very houses, you have set up memorials. Deserting me, you have uncovered your bed. You've committed adultery with the gods of the nations around. In some cases, quite literally, because of the varying kinds of practices that, were, that passed as worship in surrounding nations. The misunderstanding of Israel here and the consequent um, and the consequent foolish decisions and responses they made parallels what Paul describes in Romans chapter 1, 18 and following. How is it that the watchmen are so without knowledge? How is it that they can see all of these things happening and yet have no understanding of them? Well, because they've heard of the glory of the Lord and they've dismissed it. They've been accustomed to it. They've become bored by it. That was good in its day. But times are more complex now. Assyria is a world power that, that no one in the day of Moses could ever have imagined. So the imaginary thinking goes. It's a little bit dated. It's not quite relevant 
it doesn't seem to make sense to the surrounding nations. And so they dismiss the glory of God that they behold with their very eyes, not understanding what it is that they are seeing. And they do not account those Bible stories that they have grown up with as worthy of their trust and as, as sufficient for the challenges facing them today. After all, they reasoned. The surrounding nations appear so much richer and so much more powerful. Surely their wisdom and their power is the secret to their social, agricultural, economic, and military flourishing. The Lord responds, verse 13, when you cry out to me because all of your strategies are exhausting you and leaving you fearful and anxious and afraid that they may not be sufficient, when you cry out to me in such times, I will respond, let your collection of idols deliver you. Is it education? Is education going to rescue you? Is it that job promotion? The wind will carry them all off. A breath will take them away. You'll notice that this is the Isaianic version of what Paul describes in 1.18 and following. That the Lord, in his mercy releases us to the desires of our hearts slowly in the hope that we may one day wake up to discover that we've been pursuing idols. As Albert Einstein says, however, we are profoundly committed to our idols. Things get worse and what do we do? We follow Israel's pattern and we double down. As Albert Einstein is mistakenly credited as saying, foolishness is doing the same thing and more of it and expecting different results. Such foolishness is what a lack of understanding looks like. We pursue the wisdom of the world. We pursue the power of the world. Verses 9 and 10, you go to the kings with oil. You multiply your perfumes. You send your envoys trying to make a treaty here and trying to make a treaty there, and it just leaves us exhausted. Peace, brothers and sisters, does not come from pursuit, an exhausting pursuit of the wisdom of the world or the power of the world or the positions of the world or the praises and the prizes of the world. Peace comes by understanding. Peace comes by remembering and resting and rejoicing. Peace comes, in other words, by knowing God and knowing ourselves. Peace comes by seeing ourselves and our circumstances in the light of who God has shown himself to be through the record of his mighty acts.
The righteous man enters into peace. They rest in their beds. Who what? Walk in their uprightness. What is that uprightness? The last part of verse 13. Taking refuge in me. The one who takes refuge in me shall flourish. The language there is possess the land, shall inherit my holy mountain, is, is constituent parts of this promised blessing of a great nation, of a great name that will last forever and ever. The one who finds his refuge in me, the one who finds his wisdom in me, the one who finds his power and his courage and his strength in me, shall possess the land. And shall inherit my holy mountain. This was Isaiah's message to Ahaz at the beginning of his ministry. This was Isaiah's message to Hezekiah toward the end of his ministry. Rest in the very real presence and the very real power of your God. Who made all things, who sustains all things, and is faithful to the promise that he has made to you. He is faithful. He will do it. The glory of God's mightiest of acts is the person of Jesus Christ. But that's not his only act. That is just the act by which we recognize all of his other mighty acts, whether they came before the birth of Jesus Christ or they come after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The record of God's mighty acts recorded for us through Scripture, but also testified to us throughout church history. Mighty acts in which we rejoice and rest as we come to the table and as we observe baptism. Mighty acts as we pray together and as we worship together, as we sing together. Because, brothers and sisters, peace comes by the understanding of who God is, what he has done, and therefore who we are. Such understanding, brothers and sisters, hear me, comes by faith. The watchmen were not physically blind. They were spiritually blind. They were seeing events happening around them. They were seeing the rise of Assyria. They were seeing it, but they weren't understanding it because they did not faith the mighty acts of God through history and so did not account him worthy and able to be their defense and their refuge. Understanding that brings God's peace comes to us by faith. But brothers and sisters here, this is not something mysterious and magical. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing and heeding the word of God. Of hearing and heeding the record of God's mighty acts in his world. This is the God who has called us. This is the God who is faithful. This is the God who will do it. If he parted the Red Sea, brothers and sisters, he will carry you through this semester. 
If he provided for their every need in the wilderness, I promise you, he will provide your every need this month. Such understanding comes by faith and such faith comes by hearing. And the hearing is of the mighty works of God. One of the passages that I'm fascinated with from the Old Testament is a passage that comes to us from 1 Chronicles. And it is the account of the mighty men of David's army. Now you remember that David was blessed of the Lord. He had been called and anointed and then he was blessed. And so everywhere David went, there was military victory after military victory after military victory in ways that astound even today. And so there's this account in, the, in First Chronicles where he, he describes the mighty men of David's army from this tribe and that tribe. And those guys were really strong and they really knew how to use the bow. And that guy really knew how to use the sword. And there were lots of them. Lots and lots of them. And right in the middle of this account of this great military juggernaut that in the day nobody could stand against is this little word about this tiny little tribe called Issachar. At the heart of David's power and might was not the swords and the bows and the great numbers. At the heart was understanding. The men of Issachar, the great military resources that they brought to the table was understanding. They understood the times. That means they, they saw things happening and they knew what they meant and they knew that it was evidence of who God is and what God is doing. Man, alive, wouldn't it be cool to have the inside track on military strategies of your enemies? That's what the men of Iskar understood. I had a friend who one day uh, made a poor decision and he ended up in county lockup. A few minutes later, I was walking down the hall of the county jail and around the corner and there he was in holding and the look in his eyes were like, <gasps> Preacher, how'd you find me here? And I said, well, I'm a man of God. I know everything. <laughs> really? It was years before he understood the, what I meant by that. It was years before he understood that someone actually give me a call and say, hey, by the way, you need to go pick your friend up at County Lockup. <laughs> but it was really helpful because he was afraid that I knew everything and I was going to catch him. You see, brothers and sisters, while it looks like things are out of control, as A.W. Tozer said, behind the scenes, there is a living and loving God who has not surrendered his authority. He has not surrendered his power. He has not subleased it out. Brothers, as Leslie Newbigin says in his book, Proper Confidence, at the heart of the Christian message is a new fact. God has acted. And let us remember that the original meaning of fact is the Latin factum, meaning something done. Newbigin continues, God has acted in a way that, if believed, must from now on determine our every way of thinking. 
It, could not, it does not merely fit into existing ways of understanding the world without fundamentally changing them. According to Athanasius, it provided a new arc, a new starting point for all human understanding and all human endeavor in the world. Do you understand what he's saying? That at the heart of every circumstance in which you and I find ourselves in, at the heart of every Christian life, at the heart of every Christian marriage, at the heart of every Christian family, at the heart of every Christian life, at the heart of our every circumstance, our work or at school or even among our enemies, is this new fact. God has acted. He has shown himself faithful. The peace of God comes from the understanding of God, which comes by faith. And this faith, brothers and sisters, comes by hearing and heeding, by attending to, day by day, privately and publicly, individually and corporately, to the word of God's mighty acts in faithfulness to his promises. Brothers and sisters, if you are not in the habit of opening your Bible, not opening the app, opening the Bible and reading the authoritative and inerrant record of God's mighty acts, then you are doomed to not understanding your circumstances or your condition and you are doomed to be exhausted day after day after day. Peace comes by understanding that in Jesus Christ, in faithfulness to his promises, our God has acted. He promised. He is faithful. He will do it. So God, grant to us the courage to believe that you are who you show yourself to be and to actually go to the bank with it, to actually invest our every circumstance, our every decision, our every responsibility, our every relationship in that fact that you have acted in Jesus Christ to make all things new, even each one of us in this room, even us as a congregation in this valley, that you may be glorified. So we pray it as your children in Jesus. Amen.